Thanks for downloading and welcome to Take Orally, the emergency medicine podcast recorded at Dream Queen's Medical Centre, Nottingham. In this episode, we'll be discussing treatment of asthma. As everyone information is correct at the time of recording, all guidelines mentioned are correct for Nottingham University Hospital's NHS Trust. Other trust guidelines may vary. All views and opinions are the speaker's own. Hello, welcome back to Take Orally. Uh, Jamie Thomas here, teacher fellow emergency medicine, once again joined by Canal Hill. Hello, Dr. Thomas. Hello, Canal. How are you? Very well, very well. ED pharmacist extraordinaire. Uh, and in this episode, we're going to be talking about the treatment of asthma. Sure. Um, once again, there is a, a, a previous Take Orally podcast on asthma, myself and, and Charlie Peel, uh, will look, which mentions the diagnosis of asthma and looks very much at the acute management of, uh, of asthma. Don Pennell was also in that podcast as well. Um, so yeah, so for looking at the, the treatment of a patient coming in with acute exacerbations of asthma, please go to that podcast. Uh, in this podcast, we're again, much like with the COPD and hypertension podcast, we're looking at the uh, initiating treatments in the primary setting. That's right, yeah. Imp- uh, important because there's been some recent changes, uh, I think, with the asthma guidelines. So it's um, nothing nothing massively, massively changing, but uh, important to note the changes, I think. We're at the cutting edge here. Yes, indeed. Um, there's going to be a lot of cross coverage here with COPD. We're going to be mentioning mm-hmm. some very similar drugs. So we're not going to necessarily go in depth about the mechanism of those drugs. Yeah, absolutely. Please think... refer back to the COPD podcast. Absolutely. Um, so what is our first stage of treatment for our patient? So the key thing is is you're looking to protect your patient as best as you can at this point. So asthma, as, as we both know, because we've both been in ED for a while, is a life-threatening condition and can kill somebody quite easily if it's not controlled properly. Absolutely, very quickly. So the the key intervention, which is getting getting access to reliever therapy, um, in this case, like we spoke with COPD, um, salbutamol is usually our agent preferred. Um, you can think about using it protropium, as we spoke about again in the COPD podcast, um, but we found salbutamol tends to be the preferred option. Um, in children, um, it can we'd be using it, potentially you can use up to 10 puffs of this for acute exacerbations. Um, And it's again that risk benefit of making sure we open the lungs up um, versus the side effects. We talked about tachycardia and things Mm. like that. Um, But the key thing is to get them access to this reliever therapy so they can use it when they're getting getting potentially an asthma attack um, or identifying situations where they might develop that and to preemptively take this kind of therapy. short-acting beta agonist so salbutamol we said before terbutalin is the other option which is if your patient prefers sort of a dry powder type inhaler um, remember as well um, a spacer i would i personally recommend anybody you're giving a new salbutamol inhaler to we should be giving it with a spacer because you're going to get so much more of the drug into the lung to do its work um, with a spacer rather than with the inhaler the spacer slows it down absolutely yeah so you have to think that um You've got to think with asthma, obviously, the mechanism of it, we're getting, um, we're getting that um, constriction in the, in the vessels. So an inhaled therapy, you need to get as much in as possible. If you're not getting enough in, you're not, you're sure. not getting enough drug absorbed. So the spacer is really, really important, I think, whether it be for children or whether it be for adults. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, as well as at that time, I suppose, like we talked about COPD, lifestyle intervention. So you should not be smoking if you have yeah, asthma. Absolutely. We well, should no, be smoking anyway, but, you know, asthma... Don't don't um, uh, don't uh, smoke. 
um, getting your vaccinations, considering other things, you know, is there a cat at home yep. and things like that. So Absolutely. Doing what you can do. Yep. The immunizations and, and preventing the exposure of allergens. So asthma patients over time, once they're diagnosed, they will, they will have triggers usually. Um, the triggers can be as simple as going outside into, into the cold and mm. taking a jaw breath. That can sometimes trigger an asthma attack. But as you say, cats, um, pets, sometimes particular perfumes and things like that can trigger it. So we should be counselling at this point to avoid these kind of triggers, to identify and avoid these kind of triggers. Mm. Even some food groups are associated with um, potentially making asthma worse um, in some patients, so more allergenic-y type foods. And that's the thing will come along as, as the patient has their asthma and Absolutely, become, yeah. become aware. Okay, um, so that's very much looking at your short-term you've gone out, you've felt a bit breath, breathless, here's your Ventolin, take that. Mm -hmm. What if your patient's finding that they're needing to use that more often? That's right, what yeah. What can we move on to then? So the, the, this is the interesting thing with the, the new guidance that's just come out, is now the, um, the, the guidelines are, are recommending a, a much earlier um, introduction of an inhaled corticosteroid. So steroids are, are very effective in asthma. Um, we talked about using steroids further down the line in COPD because their benefit is not as well understood. Um, asthma is an inflammatory, acinophilic-mediated mm. um, condition. So an anti-inflammatory effect from steroids is a lot more well understood and it's, it's got a benefit. So currently, um, from, the, from the new guidance is where- I should say we're using our guidance here for NUH, but we've also got the British Thoracic Society guidance that's right, as yeah. well from September 2016 in front of us as well, I should say that now. That's right. So once we've got the once we've got the diagnosis of asthma, it now recommends initiating a low dose um, inhaled corticosteroid sure. straight away. Now, that's that's the change from the previous guidelines, which was sort of use a short-acting beta, and then if you're getting exacerbations, then move up to the steroid. We're now starting steroids a lot earlier on. Um, various different um, steroids. So in, in this case, uh, at this step, you'd be starting a inhaled corticosteroid on its own, so a monotherapy inhaler. Um, here at Nottingham, we use Clenil as our first line, but there are various other ones. Um, Polmacorp budesonide is an option. There's also fluticasone um, flixotide, which is another option. We, we currently use Clenil here, um, mainly because of the, the, the cost thing, mm. and it's just as effective as anything else. Um, usually a 100, 100 microgram inhaler, um, but you can use a 50 in children. Um, and that would be one puff twice a day, potentially going up to two puffs twice a day. Um, as we said before in the COPD podcast, um, steroids in the, in, the, in the mouth can potentially cause oral thrush. So it's about counseling the patient to um, rinse the mouth out and that sort of thing. Also, again, like I said for the salbutamol, if you prescribe it with a spacer, you're gonna get a lot more of that drug into the lung. Um, so we always recommend taking it with a spacer wherever possible. Um, an interesting counselling point, which is um, a classic sort of pharmacist intervention, uh, but it's a good thing for you to do initially, is potentially you've got your asthma patient who has two inhalers, the blue and the brown, make sure they know which one's which. It sounds obvious, but there's lots of people that will use their brown inhaler whenever they want as a reliever and say it's not working. Um, so make sure they know the blue one is for immediate, um, immediate exacerbations and the brown one is the preventer. So make sure they've got that in their head. Um, and the other thing is, because the salbutamol is bronchodilatory, um, it can actually improve deposition of steroid in the lung. So what I mean by that 
is if you're starting a patient on both, mm. what we should be counselling them to do is before taking their dose of steroid inhaler, their clenil for example, they should have a dose of salbutamol immediately before, even if they don't have any symptoms at that point. What that does is it opens up the lung vasculature and when you take the steroid inhaler, you're gonna get better deposition into the lung. So it's a nice intervention to just improve the amount of steroid you can get available into the lung. Inhale corticosteroids right at the beginning. Um, patients have been taking those, still finding them that are getting symptomatic very often over the week, not getting much relief. They may be waking up at night short of breath. Um, where do we go to there? So at, at that point, we're gonna think about, very similar to COPD, is getting them on a longer term reliever. Um, so the, the steroid is there doing its work as a preventer, but they're still getting the exacerbation, so we're needing to get them something potentially to, to, to stop the, uh, the breathlessness. So at this point, we're, we're always adding a labber in, so a, a long-acting beta-2 agonist. Um, at this point, adding the labber and then being on a steroid, we would usually combine the inhaler rather than giving this poor patient three different inhalers to use. Sure. Um, so they'll always have the SABA, the, the Ventolin or the, um, or the Terbutalin. But at this point, you're changing their Clenil or their Flixotide to a combination product. Sure. Now, the two, we'll talk about a couple of them which are commonly known. Um, Serotide, which is um, made by Glaxo, it's a, it's a monster of a drug. Um, and that's Fluticasone with Salmeterol. Sure. Um, so it's in a twice daily preparation. It has that labber in it, which as we said in the COPD podcast, is gonna sit nicely in the lung and do its continuous business of bronchodilating whilst also giving you the steroid. Um, so a good drug for that. That comes in a metered dose inhaler, your standard puff type inhaler. So remember about the spacer still. If your patient doesn't like that type of inhaler or you wanted to try something else for them, um, Simbacort is another option in asthma. Now it comes in lots of different strengths. Um, so it's starting the appropriate appropriate dose at that point, which is, I believe, the 106 dose we use, but I'd have to double-check that. Um, that is a dry powder inhaler with budesonide and formortrol. So again, similar combination. You've got the steroid doing its preventer business, and you've got the long-acting doing sitting in the lung and doing that bronchodilation. Um, the other option is Foster, um, which is beclomethasone and formortrol. Um, they're the three sort of classic inhalers that we'd use for asthma. Um, but the key thing is one inhaler which does both of that thing, it helps the compliance for the patients and as I said before, there's no reason still you can't counsel to use that salbutamol before using these these um, combination inhalers to get better deposition into the, sure. into the lung. I suppose all the way along, assessing inhaler technique, checking Absolutely. compliance, yep. you know, Younger people may not necessarily be taking it, may not necessarily be using it properly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and like, if you haven't already at this point, again, looking, keeping a diary, maybe. Yep. You know, peak flows. So keeping a close eye on peak flows yeah. is a really good indicator of asthma control. Um, so seeing on how the peak flow is being affected after these interventions. So we've got an objective measure mm. as well as a subjective measure uh, in terms of how they're doing on a day-to-day -day basis. Okay. So. What if our patient's still getting uh, exacerbations of asthma, they're still getting admitted, they're still suffering, what, what, where can we go to from there? So we can still, so we're, we'd, we'd be going along the same lines uh, and at this point we'd be thinking about cranking that steroid dose up mm -hmm. um, to give them a bit more power in the lung in terms of the, the anti-inflammatory effect. Mm -hmm. So that could be a case of increasing the strength of the, of the serotide or the Foster or the Simbacor so it's got more steroid in it pound for pound. 
um, or it could mean changing the preparation altogether to a higher potency steroid. So if, if it's still inadequate, we're looking for sort of a, a medium dose of, of um, inhaled corticosteroid. So that varies depending on which particular steroid you're using. Um, potentially then, if that's still not working and we're going for the, the steroids are going up, we would start using our adjunct type therapies, um, which are looking at um, the, the leukotriene receptor antagonist, which is uh, Montelukast. Um, which is not a bronchodilator per se, um, but it's a, it prevents some of that immune response in the lung and, and tries to dull that down, um, which is a potential addition onto that. Um, you can think at this point about adding a Lamaron. Um, the evidence isn't as good, this is why it's further down the, the list, but in COPD we use it much earlier, in asthma we can use it later. So Spiriva uh, is something we can use in asthma later mm. on um, to see if there's potential benefit. There is still that effect on the smooth muscle, so we'll get the bronchodilation um, for those patients. Um, and then there's theophylline as well, which we talked about in COPD. Um, we can think about using that in asthma for, for quite refractory cases sure. um, with the same caveats that we discussed beforehand about smoking, about monitoring levels and mm. keeping an eye for toxicity. Mm. Um, so we won't talk too much about them because there's some quite complex pharmacology going on, um, but that's when you're putting in the, um, sure. the adjunct doses. Uh, I suppose at that point as well, if you know we've got a patient who's got quite stubborn asthma, um, they may have had hospital admissions, patients will start to have a, maybe their own asthma plan. Yep. I know especially we had a talk from a paediatric nurse, uh, asthma specialist who, uh, patients are now encouraged to have, you know, these are my inhalers, these how often I use them. And, you know, in A&E we're seeing these patients that may have previously had an ITU admission, mm -hmm. been very unwell with their asthma. Uh, these patients on, on a lot of different, uh, uh, different therapies as well. Um, so we've added in potentially a, a, a leukotriene antagon a receptor antagonists. They may well be on um, uh, theophylline. Um, where is there a further step beyond there? I mean, at that point, you're you're really taking that steroid dose up to as high as you can physically tolerate. Um, yeah. So we're talking very, very high doses of, um, of things like fluticasone. You can get up to one microgram a day, mm. which is a lot of fluticasone. Mm. Um, so really going up to the maximum amount of an inhaled steroid dose. Um, at that point, then you're using many of these adjuncts. So maybe beforehand you've started them on tiotropium or mm. theophylline, mm. you're now putting them on tiotropium with theophylline with a leukotriene receptor antagonist. You're really throwing everything you can at that. Sure. Um, if you're still failing at that point, and under, at this point when you're in step three or four, um, you're looking to be potentially under a respiratory physician, um, you're then looking at potentially oral steroids, um, so maintenance steroids to, to stop that from happening. Um, and then you're looking at some monoclonal antibodies. Uh, omeluzumab, um, it's called, um, which is a very, very last line brittle asthma treatment that's um, recommended by, by specialist respiratory teams and things very like that. Very specialist. Yeah, that's not something that a GP is gonna be starting, um, but that that's sort of the last line mm. thing we're looking at at that point. Mm. Okay. Um, so a nice clear stepwise progression there. And I think, you know, realising towards the end, that's a multidisciplinary approach. That's your, your hospital team as well as community team, um, you know, as well as the patient themselves yep. being well educated about their condition. 
Uh, and again, in A&E, as we talked about in the asthma podcast, identifying these patients with brittle asthma early doors, yep. even if they look well in front of you, because as I'm sure you may have seen it yourself, I've certainly seen it, they go from well to severely That's ill right. very quickly with asthma, That's right. you know, and so they need to be in resus, they need ITU down, and being aware of that. That's right, they can deteriorate so, so quickly, um, and it really is a lot about educating them, because um, I think, from my experience, particularly working in community beforehand, was um, asthma might sometimes have a tag of a common condition that sure, people yeah. have, um, that you know is something they take an inhaler for every so often. Yeah. The, the fact of the matter is it's a very, very dangerous, life-threatening condition, and somebody who's effectively symptomless for years could very easily be exposed to a trigger or be in a situation where they've maybe got a chest infection, mm. um, where their asthma triggers, it can trigger quickly, and it could really become a life-threatening situation quickly. So it's educating patients, making sure, from a GP, GP point of view, simple interventions like making sure they've got a spare inhaler for work, yeah. or a spare inhaler for the car, mm. um, that sort of thing, yeah. um, which is actually a really important intervention. Um, we potentially do a lot of emergency supplies of these inhalers. And yeah, like it's certainly that. something I do in A&E. If, if my patient's saying, you know, I've used up my inhaler, it's mm. been that kind of a week, and, and actually they're all right, and, and they are going home, prescribe them an inhaler. Absolutely. Make sure that yeah, you don't want to be without one. It's, it's easy to think that, um, I mean, it, it's, it, would, it should seem obvious that if this patient has got a diagnosis of asthma and they need to have an inhaler, we should be giving them an inhaler. Equally, it is important to make sure that we're keeping an eye on that. So we don't, we, we don't want the situation where we're getting um, what is going to be effectively a poorly controlled asthmatic, just relying on Ventolin constantly mm. and not having the other interventions made. Sure. So if, we're, if you're seeing a patient that's using a lot of Ventolin uh, and, you're, and you're supplying lots and lots of inhalers for them. And they're only on the Ventolin. Absolutely. We should be reviewing that and thinking we need yeah. to put them on a, a chronic therapy to stop this from happening. If your patient comes in with um, an infective exacerbation of their asthma, you're starting antibiotic, is there a role for a short course of oral steroid as well? Yeah, I think the guidance says we can use a short course of steroids. It does depend on the level of, sever the level of severity that they've got. So yeah. you can potentially... So obviously, infective exacerbation of asthma, by definition, is their asthma has got worse, so their mm. problem saturating, that sort of thing. Then we can think about steroids. I think it's a 40 milligram a day short course. Mm. Um, if they've got a standard chest infection where they're not breathless or anything like that, it is equally reasonable to, to say just increase your inhaler use yeah. um, whilst you're taking these antibiotics. That is, that's a clinical judgment to a certain extent. Sure. Um, but you would have thought somebody that's attended A&E and off their legs and really struggling, um, they will potentially need a short steroid course with it. Sure. And there, there is guidance about that, um, mm -hmm. when to and when not to. And I suppose as well, the role of GP and, and, or, or, or a physician is um, some, something we do here in, in uh, NUH. Um, the respiratory department over at City Hospital, um, if you're known to have a chronic lung condition, you carry the pink card. That's right. Uh, yes. It's kind of your passport for coming in. So obviously if they are too unwell, they, they come here to A&E, but if you feel like you're struggling a bit, but you're not too unwell, they have that passport to go, I have a respiratory condition, asthma, COPD, bronchiectasis, whatever. And then they, they come in, and that's, that's right. something we can identify and educate about. Absolutely, it's it's so they can get the specialist care they need at the at the soonest time. Um, they can see a pulmonologist, they can see a re respiratory doctor much earlier on. Yeah, who have got a very good idea about the history of these type of patients. So it's really important you know who you are, and you tell the appropriate person about that card or, or yeah. your history at that sort of point. And we listen to them. Absolutely.
Brilliant. Thank you so much, Canal. Top stuff. Fantastic. Bye bye, everyone. That was the Take Orally Treating Asper podcast. As ever, you can find more information at uh, www.takeorally.com, also on Facebook and Twitter. Um, for more information on research and education opportunities within emergency medicine, acute medicine, and major trauma, don't forget to check out Anyway's Dream on both Facebook and Twitter. <laughs>